0: Welcome to the Indy Matters Podcast, where we talk about the issues that matter most to Nevada. I'm John Ralston, the editor of the Nevada Independent. Each week, we'll discuss matters of importance that we covered and look ahead to what's coming in the Nevada Independent. We're a nonprofit news site that can be found at thenevadaindependent.com. I'm joined tonight, as usual, by our trio of stellar Carson City reporters, Riley Snyder, Michelle Rendells, and Megan Messerly. Hi, team. Hey, John.
1: Hey,
2: John.
0: Hello. A lot has happened in Carson City this week, and two of the biggest stories had nothing to do with legislative policy. A state senator was accused of sexual harassment and an independent probe has been launched. Lawmakers also subpoenaed information related to a secret recording of the attorney general made by the state's top gaming regulator. We broke both of those stories and did multiple follow-ups, all of which can be found on, say it with me, thenevadaindependent.com. Um, We'll talk about those stories and developments on energy and pot policy, as well as an emotional hearing on a right-to-die law. We'll also look ahead to next week. All right, everybody, let's start with uh, uh, one of these big stories that's uh, kind of causing a lot of chatter in the hallways, and that's this story about State Senator Mark Menendo, who has been accused of sexual harassment or mistreating uh, women by a number of complainants. Uh, Who wants to talk about what's going on with this story? They're all jumping (laughs) in. This is the aggressive group of reporters that I hired, everybody.
1: Well, what happened uh, Friday night, you uh, posted the story that the independent investigator had been hired to uh, look into the allegations against Senator Mark Menendo. Um, We didn't know a whole lot. I think we still don't uh, quite know how many people are involved and who exactly is the investigator. Um, But... uh, we made an attempt on Monday to try to get some comment directly from Senator Menendo. I think it was Riley that uh, confronted him.
2: Yeah, I had the fun job of asking him about why he harasses women, and the senator said he's gonna throw all the questions to his attorney. Uh, his attorney sent us a statement saying um, they're cooperating with the investigation, a lot of other legal talk, but they, he believes he'll ultimately be exonerated. Um, and it's kind of just you know, not a lot has happened since then, the investigation is ongoing. My understanding is that they're going to try and have a report out during the session. So well, it's three weeks to go. We're going to get something probably pretty soon.
0: Ultimately, though, uh, Rick Wright, who is his lawyer, and uh, is one of the best criminal defense lawyers in the state, and he said ultimately it would be exonerated. But he also said, I believe, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, that he doesn't know anything about these allegations, right? He, de- he hasn't seen the report. He doesn't know yet. I mean, he's advocating uh, for his client. But this is the kind of story... Uh, that causes a lot of chatter, as I said, in the hallways. What What are you hearing uh, from people? I know you've been talking to people.
3: I mean, I think there's a lot of, you know, like you were saying, sort of unknowns going around right now. I mean, it's it's a sensitive subject, right? You don't have um, a lot of people who, who want to talk about it. I know we've been trying to talk to people just to see what's going on, and it's not something that people want to talk about, you know, on the record. It's it's sensitive. It's involving a lawmaker who a lot of people know and have worked with for a long time. Um, so I think there's a lot of hesitancy to talk about it. But that's sort of something that's also come up in our conversations with people is that this is a hard thing to report. You know, people don't want to come forward. They don't want their name out there. And it's an inherently hard thing to talk about. And so I think a lot of people, you know, have thoughts and concerns and maybe have heard some of this, you know, over the years, you um, you know, there are a couple of other, you know, cases that have come up in the past and things that have been talked about during past campaigns. with some Involving of Mark Menendo. Menendo, right. Yeah. Um, so apart from those, you know, instances, though, this is kind of just something that does come up in chatter here and there, but there's not you know, documentation, there's there's not proof, and, and a lot of people don't want to come forward and put their name, you know, behind whatever it is they want to say, and, and that's just, I think, an inherently hard thing about, you know, reporting, um, you know, any allegations of sexual harassment
1: or sexual assault just generally. We did get to talk with uh, former Assembly Speaker Richard Perkins, who was around in 2003, and uh, he had asked for an investigation into Senator Menendo when some allegations came up then, And the ultimate outcome of that was a report that was um, kind of inconclusive. Um, He said there wasn't enough to, uh, you know, actually take some real concrete steps against Senator Menendo. And uh, what he did was, you know, took away basically the chairmanship of the Government Affairs Committee, which is an important committee. Um, But there wasn't quite uh, something really... Solid there that came out of the investigation. So we'll see if this one is different. Uh,
0: the difference here, uh, from what I remember, uh, and the deep recesses of my uh, much older than all of you memory here, is that the, the LCB, the Legislative Council Bureau, which advises the legislature, did the investigation. Uh, no one's ever seen that report except for, I think, uh, uh, the, the leaders of the assembly, uh, perhaps. Maybe Menendo saw the report. Uh, as well, but this time, uh, uh, Senate Majority Leader Ford took the unusual step of hiring an outside law firm uh, to 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 investigate this, uh, and he's getting, from what I can tell, some praise uh, for doing that. But but as Megan alluded to, it's still very difficult, right, to get uh, women to go on the record because a lot some of these are lobbyists. Who have, who have made these allegations, they're worried that if their names come out, uh, Senator Menendo could hurt them later on. He could be coming back, maybe running for the county commission. Uh, we, we don't know. And it's it's a very difficult story, right, for us as journalists uh, to really report.
2: Right? Well, yeah, it always is, you know, he said, she said, but there is a, like a strong incentive for lobbyists who may or may not have, and we don't want to cast any aspirations. No report's been out yet against Senator Menendo. But if these women were harassed by him or, you know, he made... Uh, advances on them you know there's not a lot of upside to come out and, and speak about it he's a senator there's a lot of Senate committees where you know he might be the swing vote because it's three to two Democrats Republicans he chairs transportation if they have bills that their clients are paying them for like the the whole system is stacked kind of against them and to just kind of perpetuate this power Mark Menendez been in office since the early 1990s this is not the first time he's been accused of sexual harassment but nothing's been done you know, it's the year 2017. I don't think it's that surprising that they finally took the step to say, "We need an independent investigator." We've been running as this party that's going to support women. We're all about equal rights, and yet you have, you know, the guy in your party who's being accused of doing this. That you know, something has to give at some point. And I think it, it lends an interesting, I guess, dynamic when you look at what the Senate Republicans are doing. They called for uh, they they want to have hearings and and discuss expelling him from the Senate. Something that hasn't happened since 20. 13, I believe, when a former assemblyman, uh, Stephen Brooks, uh, not Chris Brooks, he's in the assembly, he (laughs) did not happen to him, Um, you know, basically had a mental breakdown, but they're calling for the same thing. I think there's a lot of, there's a political side to that, but there's also a very serious side that they have to kind of figure out in just these last three weeks.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's, uh, obviously there's politics when the Republicans come out with this statement about a Democratic senator and, and, and say that he should have been uh, 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 taken out a long time ago because these allegations have been made before, and they want to have some big hearings, uh, which I, I doubt Senate, Senate uh, Minority Leader Michael Roberson would have done if it would have been a member of his own caucus, although he denied that uh, when, I, when I asked him about that. He also put out a press release attacking Perkins, uh, 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 for, for, for what Perkins said. Uh, but this is a very difficult issue, not just, we were talking today amongst ourselves, maybe we should share this with our listeners, and this is a difficult thing. If this report comes out, and there are actual names of women in there, I, I don't think this is something uh, that we that we should put out there. And Michelle, you were saying, you used to work for the AP. The AP has a policy on such things. Well, what is that policy?
1: The AP doesn't name people who are alleged victims of sexual assault, sexual harassment, unless they personally come forward and give explicit permission for that to happen. So I think that might be a, a standard we might incorporate into our coverage. Yeah,
0: I think we should, and, 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 and the, I guess that what what militates against some of that is that even if there's this preponderance of evidence, and Mark Menendo has been talked about for years uh, as, as, as as having mistreated women, whether it's sexual harassment or making uh, uh, off-color comments, he does deserve to confront these accusers, does he not? And so then uh, do we have any choice but... but Uh, uh, to name them. What do you think of that, Megan?
3: I mean, I think, again, it's sort of always this really difficult situation, you know, because people are afraid to come forward because they don't want their names to be out there. And I I think it's, you know, it'll really just be a wait and see on sort of what happens and, you know, what people are comfortable with sharing with, with us. And I mean, like Michelle was saying, you know, even if that information is out in the public sphere, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's, you know, our job to to sort of publicize these people's names if it's a very sort of, you know, private, personal thing and a difficult thing to talk about. Um, so I think we'll just sort of have to wait and see how it develops.
2: Part of the difficulty, too, is that, you know, there's no, like, ethical or, like, standard, I guess. You know, they have a provision in their standing rules about sexual harassment investigations, which is kind of, like, vaguely defined. It says they can take, I believe it's, like, appropriate action against someone who's found to have violated it. It doesn't define what appropriate action is of course they have these ethics committees that are supposed to oversee the behavior of legislators in both the assembly and senate none of which have ever met in like the last five sessions you know they have the membership release they have uh members who aren't legislators on these committees but you know i really don't know what they do or if they've ever met or you know what a meeting would entail so they have kind of these like vestiges of ethical oversight that just don't get followed up on and that's what allows i think you know, potentially bad behavior from legislators who are far away from Vegas, you know. It is 2017, but Carson City's still relatively small, you know, to, to get away with a lot of this stuff. And there's not a lot of oversight or a lot of, like, structure there to make sure that that's not being reined in.
1: Right, go ahead. And the angle that you're seeing from the Republicans is that how can we trust, you know, Democrats, because Democrats have been involved in, in, in the leaders in, in past incidents when, when Menendo's conduct was called into question. Um, and so they're saying, why don't we bring the Republicans in here and, and ensure a fair hearing and ensure things are out in the open? The Democrats are, are their angle is, you know, we don't want all this information exposed for the sake of the women or, you know, the victims. So uh, it's it's kind of this both sides. <laughs> there's a lot of heated um, Rhetoric on both yeah, sides. I, I think
0: the Democrats deserve some criticism for how they've handled it in the past not so much because it is very difficult as we've all talked about to to bring this out in, into the sunshine but once they 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 believed that Menendo was mistreating women that uh, they they should have politically decapitated him. They should have cut off his money. They should have put a primary challenger up. And I think, to some extent, Richard Perkins still feels guilty about that. Probably Barbara Buckley, who uh, was a majority leader and speaker uh, back in past sessions, probably does as well. But their there options, if they, if they think there is more than just uh, uh, smoke there, are they could censure him, uh, that's been done, uh, or they could even, as as you mentioned with Stephen Brooks, start expulsion proceedings. Imagine that spectacle, though, in the waning days of the legislature, wh- wh- they they would expel a member, maybe not have time to replace him, which suddenly makes uh, Patty Farley the most uh, powerful person in the legislature. Explain that, Riley. What would happen? Well, there's thing. like
2: there's a lot of gamemanship. I don't ultimately believe, and this is just me talking, guessing. I have no idea what's mm-hmm. going to happen over the next three weeks. So if I'm wrong, please you know <laughs> cut this part out. Um, <laughs> but Yeah, you know, that's ultimately an option. A censorship, I think, is a likely endpoint for this. It depends where the investigation goes. If it comes out next week, if it comes out in the next two weeks. But one thing we've been talking about a lot is, you know, they still have so much work to do on these budget committees to close the state's two-year budget. Nevada is required under the Constitution to set the budget for two years and have it done. Um, So they have a lot of work left to do. They have a lot of bills they have to get through. Megan and I did a story over the weekend, or all three of us did a story over the weekend, where we compare the number of bills that have been passed at this point compared to every other session, we're at the second slowest pace since 1999. Now, there's a lot more work that they need to get done, and I think focusing on these other things, while they are important, it's going to take away from from some of that time. It's a, one of the balances they have to do.
0: We could just have special sessions, you know, right? I love Carson <laughs> City. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> exactly. It's beautiful in the summer. Uh, so let's talk about. So let's move on from this to talk about the other story, which which you mentioned is uh, it's going it's going to occupy their time. Uh, it appears. And this is is a result of a story that that, that we had in the Nevada Independent back in February about this stunning secret recording made last year by the head of the Gaming Control Board, A.G. Burnett, of the Attorney General, Adam Laxalt, and, and an urgent meeting that took place outside of uh, of, of, of either of their offices. Uh, and we're getting more details on that now, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. In, in which Burnett was concerned that Laxalt was acting on behalf of his biggest donor, Sheldon Adelson, the billionaire, to try to get the Gaming Control Control board to intervene on Adelson's behalf, essentially, in a civil uh, dispute. Uh, after uh, after that meeting, Adelson himself uh, came and met with Burnett to try to persuade him to file a brief to keep some documents confidential. Ultimately, Burnett told him no. Ultimately, shortly thereafter, Adelson settled that lawsuit for a reported $75 million. This week, we learned that the legislature, specifically in the in the person of Maggie Carleton, uh, the longtime uh, lawmaker who's now chairman of the Ways and Means uh, Committee. It subpoenaed uh, last week, uh, I I believe, all the information uh, related uh, to to this, and they have in their possession an an affidavit, some exhibits that we know of, and we believe they have this recording that that, uh, Burnett made, and now they may uh, hold a hearing. And uh, uh, all three of you, uh, and uh, Jackie Valley, uh, uh, our great reporter in the South, wrote a piece. Is it our first four byline piece in the Nevada stadium. Independent and our short? Yeah,
3: we one have the stadium pieces. One yeah. of the stadium pieces
0: was too. Okay, we only save yeah, it for stories vault. involving <laughs> Sheldon Adelson, apparently. We need four bylines. Uh, so we got a copy of this affidavit. You all four wrote a story about it. Who wants to talk about uh, what, what we found out uh, in that affidavit?
1: Well, I think uh, one of the interesting things was seeing um, the urgency that Adam Laxalt was showing how urgently he wanted to meet with A.G. Burnett to ask him, can you please intervene in this case? Um, After there were at least two instances when the Gaming Control Board had said, no, we don't want to get involved. Um, And there were a couple of reasons they don't want to get involved. Um, Casinos are constantly involved in litigation across the globe. I mean, if you get involved on behalf of, of one casino, then why not get involved in on behalf of everybody. Um, So they typically reserve their right to intervene for cases that directly affect their ability to regulate. Um, And this was a case that they determined was really not part of their interest. This
0: is is with a former employee of Adelson who who was suing him For damages. As as I said, they eventually settled for $75 million. But not just that they could get involved, and they'd have to get involved in every case. How bad does it look for a regulatory agency to intervene in a dispute on behalf of any licensee, whether it's Sheldon Adelson or anybody else? It compromises the entire uh, so-called gold standard, which is what a lot of people call the Nevada gaming uh, regulatory system. But you talked about, let's talk more about the urgency, and you can, Michelle, or somebody else. The urgency is revealed in text messages uh, that, that are talked about in the affidavit. And that we have now posted on, on NevadaIndependent.com, we have the entire exchange. Uh, talk about someone. Talk about those uh, uh, text messages.
3: So I think the interesting thing, you know, we were reading through the affidavit, and like you mentioned, we, we got those text messages, and you know, you you again, you see the urgency with which you know Adam Laxall wanted to meet with A.G. Burnett. Um, you see him saying, you know, oh, are you free today? No, I'm in Reno. I'm in Carson, and it doesn't work out. And then the next day they talk and you know, it doesn't seem like they're gonna be able to meet up and then um, Laxalt finds out that Burnett is gonna be going on vacation with his family for a whole week and he and you know, A. G. Burnett says, Well, hey, you know, can we meet afterwards? How about this day or that day? And Laxalt says, No, it's urgent, I need to meet with you before then, like today and so Burnett ends up telling him that he's at a car dealership and uh, that Laxalt can come by if he wants. So it's sort of the strange series of events where Laxalt goes and picks up Burnett at the car dealership and takes him to a coffee shop for for this meeting, and you know, then the affidavit goes into some of the details of that and, and what Laxalt said, you know, as far as you know, talking about the possibility of the board intervening in this case and you know saying, hey, this document is confidential. Um, but, but I think it's just sort of the, the unusual details, you know, the car dealership and, and the coffee shop, which just sort of makes for a sort of interesting theater in a sense. You know, they're just interesting, sort of poignant detail details.
0: And the question raised, of course, is why the urgency. Uh, uh... you know why did he have to meet with him? Uh, and and uh... the the, the truth is, is that it comes out in the affidavit that Adelson and his minions have been trying to do this previously that that uh, Laxalt clearly had talked to either Adelson or uh... Or, or one of his employees about this uh... issue and but why is this issue intervening on behalf of Sheldon Adelson in a civil dispute so urgent for Adam Laxalt Uh, who, uh, coincidentally or not, is uh, partially indebted at least to Sheldon Adelson for his election uh, and potentially we should mention for his uh, candidacy for governor, which he's going to help him with. And we pointed out the ties between Adelson's organization and and, and, and Laxalt as well. His campaign manager is a lobbyist for Las Vegas Sands. Uh, corporation the questions that i think are raised most pointedly by that affidavit is why this urgency what is the compelling state interest here do
2: we know that Well, we really don't um you know i believe burnett said in the affidavit that black salt wanted to speak with him because the court was making a decision during the next week when burnett was going to go on vacation with his family so there was a kind of an added urgency and that one of the interesting things from uh the text messages that we got you know we 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 it backed up a lot of the things that were in the affidavit. It was nice to see them like in, in text form, but Burnett texted Laxalt and asked him like, Hey, Sheldon Adelson uh, wants to meet soon. You know, I assume this is related really to what we talked about. And Laxalt just says, yes. It's like, do you want me? And then a redacted name to come along. And, and then Burnett says, no. And if you read the affidavit and read the story, you see what goes on from there. But I thought that was like very clear that this was all on behalf of, of, uh, Adelson. And Waxall, in a statement to us, has said both in February and now that this was typical behavior for an attorney general to intervene on behalf of one of their clients. So he has a, a rationale for it. But, you know, one of the larger questions is, again, that compelling state interest. And, and
0: we went further in a statement uh, this time, too, though, after I found out after we asked him about the legislative hearing and, and the subpoenas. What did he say then?
2: Well, he said this is just partisan politics. It's Democrats, you know, knowing he's running for governor, even though he hasn't announced yet, trying to make a spectacle out of nothing. I think he said it was distracting from their radical agenda. So it's... That will
0: hurt working families.
2: Yeah. Apparently. Everyone's so concerned about working families. Indeed.
1: And it's not misplaced in in the sense that, yes, the committees have maybe perhaps been um, a little harsh on Laxalt. They, They... uh, didn't hear his bills and they've kind of took every chance they can to snipe at him during some of these committee hearings um, so it's not entirely misplaced that he would say it's partisan politics but of course the issues raised in the affidavit are are pretty well there's serious. no question that
0: Democrats want to hurt Adam Laxalt, right? The, the state Democratic Party, I think, puts out almost a daily release attacking uh, a- Adam Laxalt, who's raised a lot of money, is having fundraisers in D.C. and in, in, in Las Vegas uh, and Reno, I believe. And so, uh, yeah, of course, there's a partisan impulse by some of these Democrats. Uh, I, I, I don't necessarily think we should accuse all the Democrats of doing that, but clearly they want they want to hurt Laxalt. But clearly Laxalt doesn't want to talk as much about the facts in in, in the affidavit and, and perhaps what's on the tape than he does to cast aspersions on a democratically controlled legislature, which now indicates it wants to have a hearing Maggie Carlton wants to have a, a, a hearing uh, uh, on this perhaps as early as next week, and she also uh, 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 has submitted a bill draft to do what? I thought this was really interesting. Who wants, who wants to talk about that? So she- Michelle
2: and I, in a very late night Ways and Means, which is the budget committee for the Assembly, uh, snuck in, and we missed it, but then we caught up with uh, Assemblywoman Carlton afterwards. She introduced a bill draft request, which is basically a request to the legislature's legal staff to put in a piece of legislation for the Gaming Control Board to have its own legal counsel. Right now, the Gaming Control Board is served by a, a DAG, a Deputy Attorney General. That's overseen by the Attorney General's office. That's Adam Waxalt, um, who has the hiring and firing power over that person. Her rationale, when we caught up with her, was essentially, you know, they don't trust their own legal staff at this point. If you read the affidavit, um, Burnett goes into all of the stuff about how Waxalt was going against what the DAG, who was stationed with the Gaming Control Board, was saying. There was a lot of questions that they had internally, you know, can we trust these people? Because, let me just, just
0: interrupt you just a second, Riley, because the Deputy Attorney General had previously opined uh, a- a- against them uh, putting uh, uh, the- themselves into this lawsuit, which was that Laxalt apparently was advocating for Burnett to do, so th- that caused him a-, a great deal of concern, I think, uh, uh, in the Gaming Control Board.
2: Yeah, I think he said he was, like, perplexed uh, in the affidavit over why Laxalt was doing that, so... Again, that was Carlton's reasoning. You know, we don't have the bill yet because it's just a, a request. Uh, it's possible that this could just be a deputy attorney general position. Like the funds will just move over from one account to another, so it won't cost the state that much money. But again, this is like this is legislative action they're trying to take. I think in like a less like overtly partisan way in a sense to make
0: it look like it's policy to make it look like and, and it is actually right uh, it, it says because the, the they've lost faith in the attorney general they think they need to provide money for separate legal counsel that's pretty stunning right you have the probably the most important regulatory board in the state the gaming control board essentially uh, being now trying to separate itself from the
1: attorney general's office that's really serious stuff right so Adam Laxalt is their lawyer. Him and his office are their lawyer. And so A. G. Burnett expresses this concern that why is my lawyer meeting with this company that we're that it's kind of known that we're gonna discipline
0: um, oh, you should mention that, too. That's the, the other background. There was the federal and state investigations going on, at, and contemporaneously with all this, the feds eventually fined the Sands $9 million, I believe, and, and the state followed up by fining him
1: $2 million. That was all going on at the same time. I'm glad you reminded everybody of that, Michelle. So there's this current concern is why is he having meetings with, the, um, you know, this outside party that we're supposed to be regulating without us there? He's our lawyer you're meeting with I don't know, maybe the adversarial party. Um, So there was some concern, and I think that was kind of the basis for the the loss of trust that, that Maggie Carlton is citing as a reason for her draft request.
0: Uh, I believe Maggie Carlton used the word unsettling, uh, uh, or she said she was unsettled by what she found in the information, which is why she wants uh, to have a hearing. One other thing uh, Laxalt did in his statement, besides uh, uh, what you said, Riley, about making these, uh, accusing them of partisanship, is invoking his uh, uh, predecessor, Catherine Cortez Masto, who was a Democrat, uh, 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 and, and saying essentially this is routine, and she did it uh, uh, too. Uh, we finally, uh, 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 Megan, we, we, we got reaction, and you've done some reporting that, that uh, uh, we're podcasting here on a Thursday night. It's going to appear in the Friday edition of the Nevada uh, uh, Independent. You should look it. It'll be up by the time you hear this. Uh, talk about what Catherine Cortez Masto's response was and what you found out about the cases cited by Laxalt.
3: Yeah, so uh, today we got a statement from now Senator Catherine Cortez Masto's office, um, essentially saying, so, you know, Laxalt had asserted that, you know, this is a routine action that, you know, all former attorneys general take, including Catherine Cortez Masto, mentioning her by name. Um, And so we got a statement from her office today saying this comparison does not make any sense. Um, And she talks about two different cases, and sort of the the two biggest cases that that come to mind are uh, a case in 2008 and a 2013 case. Um, Sort of on their surface, there are some comparisons to this recent case. Um, But when you look at the details, it's actually a little bit different. uh, there was a 2008 case between actually Adelson and former Las Vegas Review Journal columnist John L. Smith It was this long-standing legal battle between the two um, at I should just stop you real quickly yeah. and just say just
0: for full disclosure We should tell everybody that John L. Smith now is a regular columnist for the Nevada Independent,
3: but go ahead Right, <laughs> so Smith's lawyers at the time um They were trying to get some information from the Gaming Control Board, and so they actually subpoenaed this information. Um, They wanted uh, information relating to um, Adelson's gaming license, and that's information that's confidential, unless the court says that the Gaming Control Board has to disclose it. So at the time, Cortez Masto, you know, intervened in the case. Uh, she wrote this um, opposition to their motion to compel them to disclose this information, essentially saying, you know, we, we have a compelling interest. The Gaming Control Board has a compelling interest in ma- maintaining confidentiality. Um, you know, it goes back to this idea that Nevada is the gold standard of gaming, that, you know, they need a very strong regulatory body in order to ensure that everything is safe and legal and, and you know, well overseen. Um, So her argument in that opposition was essentially that when we're going through the licensing process when someone applies to us, we need to be able to interview the applicant, we need to be able to interview other witnesses, and they need to know that they're going to have full confidentiality so they can tell us whatever about the applicant because we need the most information possible, we need them to be honest and forthright, and without that confidentiality they might be afraid of saying something or bringing something to the gaming control board's attention. Um, and so essentially they were saying that, you know, by, by setting a standard and making these, um, these documents public, you know, we're, we're compromising our ability to do our job. And, and that was again, a direct request to the gaming control board and, and they were opposed to it. Um, and then again, in 2013, we saw, um, another case between some, uh, some gaming licensees and in that case, uh, it, was, it wasn't actually a direct request to the Gaming Control Board, um, but the Gaming Control Board felt that this information was being requested in an attempt to circumvent their confidentiality rules. So essentially, there was some information uh, that the, the plaintiffs wanted about a defendant, and so they were requesting the communications that the defendant had had with the Gaming Control Board. So the board basically said, "Hey, we, we you know, you're essentially requesting our communications without, you know, requesting them from us." Um, and so Cortez Masto was the Attorney General in that case as well, and said, "You know, again, we still have these same confidentiality concerns. You know, all, all the same stuff about you know the integrity of the gaming system and, and whatnot." Um, in that it was an amicus brief, um, and so those are the two examples that that uh, Cortez Master referred to in her statement. You know, saying in both of these cases, I did what was best for the Gaming Control Board. I did it on their behalf. You know, there there was no one else involved. It was it was just us working together. I involved the board in all of these discussions. Um, so trying to sort of draw a distinction there between you know those two cases um, that have come to light and you know what happened in the SANS case. Um, which is a little bit different because the information wasn't being requested from the Gaming Control Board; it was the separate information from the SANS that had had been requested, and uh, the Gaming Control Board said, "This isn't, you know, our issue. You know, if it, if they had been asking for this information from us, completely different story. You know, we would have we would have it. fought it." Yeah, yeah. Uh, AG Burnett said that today. He said we would have fought it. You know, the same way that that Cortez Master did in 2008 and 2013. But they didn't come to us for the information. This sort of isn't our game. It's balls not in our court. Um, so why would we have intervened?
0: It seems to me that the difference is, if I understand this correctly, is that the two cases that you, that you uh, wrote about Uh, have to do with uh, how the Gaming Control Board does its job and and the entire regulatory structure, while this case has to do with uh, the Gaming Control Board being asked by an outside party to intervene in a lawsuit. It seems totally different.
3: Right, and that was one of the biggest distinctions, and and that's what Cortez Masto said in her statement and made clear in her statement is that, you know, we did this at the behest of the Gaming Control Board. This is something, you know, they wanted, they asked us to do. Um, and A.G. Burnett said the same thing, you know, this is something the gaming control board wanted to do, you know, on its own for its own regulatory interest, where in this case, you had a licensee, the Las Vegas Sands, approaching the gaming control board, you know, saying, hey, we want you to do this, you know, then approaching Laxalt and saying, hey, we really want this. So it's coming from the licensee and not coming from the board itself to further its own, you know, best interest in terms of making sure that it's a, a strong regulatory agency.
0: Now, this story, I, I think is uh, far from over. There may be uh, that hearing uh, next week, which would is really going to be something to talk about uh, shows, uh, with the partisanship that that is going to be evident there. But we'll see, you know, I, I mean, this is going to be a time for I mean the facts are the facts in this, and I, and I hope AG. Burnett has to testify, and I hope Adam Laxaltos, because it would really uh, be something not just great for us at the Nevada Independent, but it'll be great to really illuminate uh... what 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 really happened but i mean i want i'm wondering as we go down toward the end i will talk about a few other stories in a minute you have this menendo uh... uh thing going on you have the laxalt burnett thing going on which is really dividing it seems at least if you see what michael roberson's doing in both of these this this partisan divide that 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 has existed most of the session right but you hope will uh, to some extent uh... dissolve a little bit as they try to make deals at the end this could overshadow everything. I I I mean, both these things could really affect people's moods, how they behave, right? Uh, and and the one person we haven't heard from, by the way, in in the Laxalt story, really is is, is the governor, who uh, whose spokesman did tell me today has, still has full confidence in A. G. Burnett. But uh, I, I guess I'm wondering. Uh, you guys have followed these people all through this entire session, almost a hundred days old now, this seems to me these two stories could really exacerbate tensions, even though they have nothing to do with what, you know, what's going to happen on ESAs or energy policy or anything else that's really going to, could affect what, what happens. What do you think?
2: Well, I'll just comment first that, John, you congrats broke news on the podcast for the first time. So good job. Uh, that's listen. the news
0: about the governor and, and, and A.G. Bernard, Yes.
2: But yeah, um, you know, we've talked for the last five or six weeks, however long we've been doing the podcast about all these like really complex, complicated issues, whether it's criminal justice, whether it's energy, whether it's marijuana policy. But like you're saying, there's all these partisan tensions that are kind of building and building and building. You know, the Democrats have a really weak bench. There's a lot of state legislators there who are thinking about, you know, can I run for secretary of state? Can I run for state treasurer? Can I run for, you know, Congress or Senate? They're all held
0: by Republicans, the constitutional offices now.
2: Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of you know there's a lot of yearning a lot of looking forward to 2018 Um, there are these like these two kind of like I guess I think it's like black swan is the term uh, just events you couldn't have kind of guessed maybe not Menendo but these just Riley's bringing the
0: Malcolm Gladwell in here I'm very impressed go ahead Uh,
2: but these two like really newsy events that dropped in like the fourth or fifth to last week before the session ends like they don't really have a big policy impact like they're not going to change how people's lives operate on a day-to-day basis they're very important it's very you know a lot of oversight is needed in terms of keeping people accountable but you know there are a lot of policy discussions that it might get like turned away people weren't expecting because of um how these two different events play out
0: i think that's i think that's probably right let's talk about a couple of stories that we've been following the entire session and let me start with you michelle you wrote about. uh, since you love to cover the tax commission, I believe you went to the tax commission this week to cover uh, uh, the, the the final uh, uh, um, meeting. It appears on on these new marijuana regulations. Uh, it was legalized by question two last time. Now they're trying to essentially accelerate when when it starts, and they approved these regulations. Uh, was uh, what was there uh, was there there's something that we should keep an eye out on? I know the liquor distributors have been upset. What what happened at that meeting?
1: Well, they ended up voting these temporary regulations in as is there was only one opposition vote i think there were six yes votes but the the bulk of the hearing on those was dominated by this dispute with the liquor distributors who feel like they were guaranteed a privileged you know first dibs on this portion of of the marijuana industry the distribution part where they would drive you know between dispensaries and and move product and keep track of things for the tax department um they feel that the state kind of unilaterally and without a lot of transparency declared that they weren't sufficient enough and now the marijuana industry can also apply for these licenses. Um, so during the hearing, they were uh, fighting back pretty hard. They had an amendment that they wanted to these regulations. Um, they And ultimately, you know, they kind of lost uh, in that vote. But I don't think they're going away there's a very real possibility that this could, um, you know, there, there might be some legal action that could stall the process. Um, the state is hoping to get things going by July 1st for two reasons. One is that the budget projections, that now the budget is somewhat heavily based on marijuana revenue. I think they're counting on $100 million in the marijuana industry overall for that budget. Um, they want as much money, as much tax revenue as possible, And also, they're talking about the black market. So you've got a situation where it's legal to use marijuana now, and it's not legal to buy marijuana. So you see someone smoking on the street. Where did they get it? They got it from the black market. So um, they want to get rid of that black market. And of course, these very you know, expensive marijuana dispensaries uh, have made huge investments, and they've only got the small medical marijuana market right now. They want this huge market of tourists and and recreational users, so they're anxious to get this going quickly. Um, And it'll be interesting to see if either this uh, liquor distribution issue uh, rears up again and slows down this process, stops them from doing it by July 1st, Um, the other thing is lawmakers can challenge the regulations. They don't take effect for 35 days. So any legislator can come and say, I want to review this, um, and potentially turn back the clock. What happens if that happens? How does that review process work? It would go before the legislative commission. Um, and if they determine that there was, uh, that the regulations are not complying with statute, then they have to go back to the tax department. They have to come up with something new, come back, you know, another, uh, within sixty days, with with a new draft of their regulations, so all of this stuff could potentially push back the start date and and you know put some tax revenue in. Jeopardy.
0: I ran into uh, Dionne Contine, the, the head of the tax department in, in, in the hallway, and and she was talking about the challenges of erecting this entirely new structure and getting everything going uh, by July 1st. I mean, July 1st is not that far away, right? I mean, it's, they don't have that much time to do all of this.
1: Yeah, there's still um, a lot to do. These businesses, they're right now going to start accepting applications. There's a two-week window. They've got to determine that all these businesses are, uh, you know, sufficient and in good standing. Um, and then there's, there's also the dynamic at the local government level, and some, you know, local governments are thinking, maybe we want a moratorium. Do we really want things to start on July 1st? So, um, you know, they've got some say in this, too. That's
0: a fascinating issue. And speaking of fascinating issues, Riley, uh, you covered, again, the 402-member uh, uh, Commission on Energy Choice, or uh, it just seems to have 402 members. They had their second meeting Uh, this week, and it was interesting because you had uh, uh, experts from uh, three other states uh, that have uh, experienced deregulation and choice come in, and what did they say?
2: Yeah, enough about, you know, these sex scandals and secret <laughs> tapes and drugs. Let's talk about something interesting, energy that's policy. That's right.
0: Talk about renewable portfolio standards and integrated yeah. resource planning. IRPs, yeah. Right. Gets Thanks for going. tuning in to this podcast. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, so energy choice is actually super interesting, um, he said very earnestly. Um, so on Wednesday, we have the second meeting of this interim commission that's chaired by Lieutenant Governor Mark Hutchison, an attorney who really doesn't have a lot of experience with energy policy. Basically, it's charged with, as we've talked about before on the podcast, figuring out what happens if Question 3, this ballot initiative that passed on like a 75 25% margin in 2016, passes again, and by 2023, we have to have a retail um, energy market. So instead of everyone using Envy Energy, Southwest, or NV energy um, you can sh- pick and choose. Um, and a few other states have done this. None have really done it since the late 1990s. So on Wednesday, a bunch of former uh, PUC, Public Utility Commission, Regulators from three different states, Texas, California, and Pennsylvania, all came in and basically said, Here's what we did, here's what worked, here's what didn't, here's what we think you should do. So, you know, Nevada isn't like those three states. There are some similarities, but we have a much smaller population. Unlike Texas, we don't have like just oil fields that we can tap into. We really just have solar and we have to import a lot of natural gas. Um, we don't have a, an energy wholesale market, which is this uh, arrangement a lot of East Coast states have where they can buy and sell electricity between multiple states. Um, we would have to form one or join up with California. I, I spoke with Lieutenant Governor today, and that was his biggest concern: is you know, do we like latch on to California and we just were along for the ride for whatever they do? Do we form our own among like Utah and Arizona? Do those states even want to form a wholesale energy market? So this commission has a ton of questions they have to figure out. There, I spoke with just a name drop again. I something with Paul Anderson today about a, a net metering bill, a rooftop solar related thing. He said we're operating off the assumption that energy choice will pass. Like we have to do everything that we do this session through this lens. It's coming to these discussions about raising the renewable portfolio standard, net metering, basically any energy issue uh, filters through these lenses. So it was interesting to hear what all these experts had to say. Obviously a lot of them are are retail energy choice advocates because it's worked out relatively well for their states. they've all done things a little bit differently. You can go in the article. I don't want to bore all of you anymore on how California's energy market is set up or how Pennsylvania... It's actually
0: a fascinating issue, though, and what really was uh, interesting uh, about this, and you mentioned this, is that energy choice has to pass twice. It passed once. uh, Overwhelmingly, it's likely to pass again uh, next, next time. But... Nobody knows what this market really is going to look like, how many providers there will be. Envy Energy is essentially, and correct me if I'm wrong, Riley, essentially taking the position, we're not going to be the provider of last resort. Don't count on us for what we've done in the past. And so they have to make policies kind of on the if-come, to use a gambling term, uh, assuming that this is going to pass and hoping they don't make any mistakes in the policy if it
2: passes. Yeah, it's hard because no other states this small without a wholesale market they can tap into have gone to retail choice. Pat Wood who was a former FERC chairman he led Texas's uh, deregulation efforts in the 90s he had a great line saying you know settlers or pioneers get shot settlers get the land like you don't want to be a pioneer and we're kind of being a pioneer here we're kind of forced by this constitutional amendment to to go ahead and do this Pat Wood also said you know maybe it makes sense to to ramp things up in 2019 or 2020 you know start with either like a pilot program or or some other way to like ease into this because if they don't do this right you know this is just going to wreck havoc on people's energy bills and power bills. You know, the, which is all
0: people listening here, right, really care about, is how is this going to affect their power? Yeah, I mean, we right can
2: nerd out about you know, right, whatever rates or IRPs and stuff. And you know, the hippies care about how much renewables are made, I guess. But you know, at the end of the day, this really comes down to: Do you want to be able to choose your power company, like you choose your cell phone provider, like you choose the car you buy, and is that worth potential like volatile swings in prices we've seen? success stories like you'd call texas a success story we've seen horror stories like california in the late 90s and early 2000s um so they there's just so much stuff they have to do and figure out in like the next year it's staggering
0: does this commission this special commission that was set up to, headed by the lieutenant governor keeps meeting throughout the year now
2: yes they have their meeting dates um kind of internally set they have like all these little working groups that are going to meet together and, and you mentioned there's you know way too many people on mm-hmm. this commission it's 25 people it's Uh, casino members. There's someone from Tesla, someone from Switch. There's three or four legislators. There's Mark Hutchison. There's clean energy advocates. There's, you know, a guy from the Paiute tribe in Las Vegas. They basically brought all the stakeholders they could think of, people who were both very pro and very against um, the, the question three when it did pass. So, you know, they Mark Hutchinson has a lot of cats to herd. He's got a lot of people yes. with a lot of strong opinions exactly. who spend a lot of money and have a lot of money writing on how this all plays out.
0: And uh, uh, we know what you'll be doing in the interim, uh, Riley.
2: Education coverage? <laughs> 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 uh,
0: let, let, last story I want to talk about, Megan, is, is, is a hearing that you covered. Uh, and and uh, it was a very emotional hearing about a right to die law, death, death uh, with dignity, uh, talk about that hearing and talk about uh, uh, the, the governor, who almost never takes a position on, on a bill, has taken a fairly strong position on this one.
3: Yeah, so the hearing is on this bill, SB 261. It's Democratic Senator David Park's bill. Um, essentially, it would allow people, if people are familiar with, you know, Oregon's um Patient or uh, physician-assisted suicide, or it has a lot of different names, and a lot of the names are really politicized. But you know, you have physician-assisted suicide, right to die, physician aid in dying. Um, but this sort of the concept that you know, patients uh, can, you know, if they're terminally ill, which in Nevada would mean um, they have they they are projected to live for another six months. Um, They're at least 18, they're Nevada residents, they're, um, you know, mentally competent and of sound mind and making this decision of their own choice. Um, If you meet those criteria, you'd be allowed to uh, request your doctor to prescribe you um, a controlled substance, a drug that you could then take to end your own life. So, you know, a lot of people who have terminal illnesses want this as an option so they don't have to, you know, wait till the disease sort of overtakes them. We heard a lot of really emotional testimony from people with terminal illnesses, from family members of people with terminal illnesses, talking about you know, how hard it is in sort of those final days when you're losing all of your faculties, you can't speak, you can't walk, and giving people this option so that they can choose to, to, to go on their own terms and, and be surrounded by friends and family when they're sort of aware of what's happening to them. Um, so it was a really emotional hearing. And, and so we heard that argument from proponents of the bill that this is, you know, something to to let people, you know, take charge, you know, to, to have dignity in, in the way they choose to die. Um, but at the same time, we heard a lot of pushback from, you know, opponents saying that, you know, what if this is used to take advantage of the elderly or, or the disabled? And what does that mean and what protections are in place? And the bill does state in there that, people, um, a doctor can't prescribe a controlled substance solely based on someone's age or disability status. So that's sort of the the safeguard against that. But still, some people are worried that isn't enough. And, you know, a, a lot of other people were, were worried that um, insurance companies are just going to be recommending that people, you know, choose this option instead of, you know, paying for a life-saving bone marrow treatment or something that's really expensive. And sort of this fear that, you know, an insurance company will cover this, but, you know, won't cover something that could potentially save your life and, but is, you know, more costly. So there was that concern as well. Um, the interesting thing you mentioned, uh, the governor doesn't often take positions on bills, but with this one, um, his spokeswoman did say that he does not support the policy. Um, so that sort of doesn't give this bill much of a hope. He's Catholic, <laughs> I think she cited, right? And that, he is Catholic.
0: She didn't, and, she didn't cite that, but, but he is Catholic. He doesn't, and that, may, that, may be, that may have an uh, impact on, uh, here uh is the support for this is it partisan Uh, and and support because david parks you mentioned is a sponsor he's a democrat Mm -hmm. are did republicans indicate that they're they're against this in the committee
3: well so one of the things i we didn't hear a lot from republican senator scott hammond um so it's sort of harder to tell where he stands on the issue, but the the one who was really vocal in the hearing, who is on that committee is Republican Senator Joe Hardy. He's a doctor, though. A lot of doctors are, are concerned about this and express some concerns, so obviously there are doctors who support it as well, but, you know, a lot of doctors feel like, you know, they take this oath, do no harm, and that, you know, this is in violation of that oath, and um, I think a, a lot of his concerns came from sort of that place and, and just concerns about, you know, the, the logistics of it and, you know how this could really help. And he he brought up this idea, you know, we're doing all this um, suicide prevention efforts, you know, or is this sort of in contradiction to that? And obviously proponents of the bill wouldn't agree. They don't consider this suicide. Um, So there's a lot of tension there. So it's hard to tell, but I I think it's such a personal issue that it doesn't necessarily fall along party lines. It'd be
0: interesting to see if it it does pass. Yeah. Because that could affect the, the governor's veto. All right. Um, we're just about out of time. I, I let's, let's give our loyal uh, podcast listeners a glimpse into what's going to be in the uh, Nevada Independent this weekend. Uh, Michelle and uh, uh, Megan, are, are you've been working on a big project for a while. Talk about
1: that. We've got a story that's going to go over the whole spectrum of criminal justice bills that we're seeing this session mm-hmm. and kind of the whole politics behind it. Yeah.
3: So everything from, you know, we've seen decriminalization as far as you know marijuana and and sealing and vacating you know those minor level marijuana offenses to you know prison conditions and what that looks like to these you know re-entry uh different provisions like you know ban the box which you know would would make it easier for for ex felons to get jobs and restoring voting rights and whatnot so we're sort of looking at the whole gamut we've talked to a, a ton of different people, you know, um, law enforcement supportive of some bills, not supportive of others. You've talked to the Department of Corrections and parole and probation, sort of get their take. And, and the it's, governor
0: supports some, maybe? The governor, Former we actually judge.
3: have yet to hear from. Hopefully he will uh, get back to us yeah, before, <laughs> <laughs> before, before the
0: story runs. I don't, I don't think they <laughs> will take a position uh, on too much. I, I have a feeling, and this is a great issue because there's so many bills, it'll be part of, uh, of, of the end game, especially because the restoration of felon's rights is a big issue for both, of the Democratic leaders. Okay, look forward to seeing uh, that, that that story. Riley, what are you working on for the weekend?
2: Well, John, you're not the only one who's going to break news on the podcast because oh, I will be able to confirm that Governor Brian Sandoval will replace James Comey as director of the <laughs> FBI. You
0: know, that's why I hired you, Riley, to break these big news. I got the, I got the scoops. <laughs> <laughs> um,
2: I have a Follow the Money that I worked on with Megan, the, these ongoing series we have of... Uh, basically tracking all the campaign donations from different industries trying to find weird ways or different ways to to indicate them so this week we worked on mining companies and you know it's kind of who you expected it's newmon it's Barrick, it's the nevada mining association and a few other smaller players in in the finance pool how much do they give I believe it's a little more or less than a quarter million dollars, which you know we throw out like it's not a big number because you know unions gave <laughs> what a million like the. We total... haven't even heard much about
0: mining this session, right? They haven't had a high profile on any issues, have they? I, mean, I guess they're interested in the energy issue a bit, but uh, anything else really?
2: I think the lithium mining bill died, right. and if there are lobbyists listening, I'm sorry if I get any of these wrong. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's been pretty quiet for mining, not like 2013 when they tried to. Right. Let's not get into that. <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah, let's not, let's not talk about the, the past. We're all about the future uh, here at the Nevada Independent. Well, uh, 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 that's all the time we have uh, for this uh, edition of the Indy Matters podcast. We want to know what you think. So please, if you have ideas, criticism, or even praise... Email us at ideas at thenvindy.com. And don't forget to go on iTunes. We are on iTunes. Rate us very highly, please, and subscribe. And please check out our site if you haven't already. You've heard about some of the great content on there, thenevadaindependent.com. I want to thank our great Carson City reporting trio of Megan, Michelle, and Riley for being here. And as always, many thanks to Joey Lovato, who's our fantastic UNR intern who, despite his occasional problems with microphones, makes us all sound podcast smooth every week. I'm John Ralston. Thanks for listening to Indie Matters, and we'll talk to you next week.
1: Like,
3: like, please give an example. Yeah. A bus.
1: <laughs> the idea of a bus, like going really fast, or like jumping <laughs> a curve. Why is that I funny don't know to why you? It's so